Before we continue our worship to the preacher of God's word, I invite you to join me in a prayer of confession. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, again, we thank you for the privilege together this morning. We ask this morning that you would hear our hearts as we come before you to confess our great need for you moment by moment. I continued struggle this side of glory with sin, knowing that um, our hope rests in Christ alone. Our sin stain has been, our sin debt has been paid in full, yet we still struggle and wrestle with the reality of sin this side of our eternal hope and glory. We know that it it breaks our intimate fellowship with you. So we come to confess it. We come to own it and know that our only hope is to lay our lives before you moment by moment, that you may continually build us up, strengthen us through your word, fill us with your truth and grant us capacity to walk in righteousness. We come as a desperate and needy people. Hear our hearts cry. Fill us up, strengthen us, cleanse us, change us, that we might have fuller and sweeter intimacy with you. That we might know you more fully and that we might walk in a way that's pleasing and honoring to your name. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we come uh, to, cha- or excuse me, to uh, uh, chapter 22 in the book of Acts. And we'll be looking at verses 1 through 15 this morning. That's a part of a, a little larger running narrative there in the first part of chapter 22. But we'll, pr- we'll try to tackle the first 15 verses. The title of this morning's message is Paul the Apologist. And the apologist comes uh, from the Greek word apologia, which means to give an offense, a defense of the faith. And so we're going to find Paul here in this chapter uh, standing... Um, in a unique context, in a very difficult circumstance, and giving a testimony of the gospel, of the work that God has done in his life. And so we're going to see Paul share the gospel, or we're going to see a moment, an evangelistic moment, if you will, there with Paul. And so this morning, we'll see Paul, the apologist. If you will, let's just look through these verses together, kind of get a feel for the language, and then we'll begin to uh, work through it and see uh, where we too can be strengthened by Paul's example here in this context at this time where we see Paul giving uh, really his testimony of what God has done in his life. And he will do that several times in the book of Acts and other places as well. But this is a very interesting context that we find Paul in. And he's going to seize the moment, if you will, and tell what God has done for him and refer to the saving work of Jesus Christ. So look with me there beginning in verse 1, and let's read through verse 15. So again, here's Paul standing, and now he's captive, literally. He's bound, he's chained to two Roman soldiers. And he's been torn from the Roman guard away from a hostile crowd of Jewish fellow Jews there in Jerusalem. He's been accused wrongly of bringing a Gentile into the temple. Um, He's been pictured 
as someone who is opposed to the law. He's been uh, accused of someone that has turned on the Jewish people, turned on the Jewish faith, and is now apostate. And the crowd is just moments before we hear Paul speak, the crowd has attempted to tear him limb from limb, and the Roman authorities had to come in and break up the event out of fear of a riot breaking out on the street and spilling over into greater violence. It was a a mob violent mentality. And Paul has been pulled away, snatched from uh, having himself torn limb from limb. And now he's bound to Roman guards. He's been brought up to Fort Antonio. And he's kind of standing on the precipice of the chair uh, of the steps there, entering into the fort that sets over top of the city. And so the crowd is gathered underneath the stairway, if you will. And so Paul makes the request to the Roman commander, may I speak? And so now we're going to see what Paul says here. Beginning in verse 1. He begins, brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, that is really Aramaic, that was the language of the day. They became even more quiet and said, and he said, I am a Jew born of Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel. Strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both man and woman into prison. As also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them, I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there in Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. But it happened that as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, get up and go on into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is to be appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me, and came into Damascus, and a certain man, Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time, I looked up at him and he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear the utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now, this is quite a context, and that's quite an event. So Paul has some very unique circumstances here to deal with. 
That's true, a very unique testimony of what God has done in his life. But in, in the, at, at the core of his testimony, which has unique aspects to it, at the core of his testimony, it is no different than your testimony. If you are here as a genuine blood-bought follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ has too entered into your life supernaturally. And he snatched you too from spiritual darkness and brought you into spiritual light and his covenant love. Uh, according to his atoning blood shed on your behalf. He has made you a fellow heir, just like he has made Paul many centuries ago, a fellow heir in Christ. The same God here that broke into Paul's life so uniquely in space and time also has broken into your life in a very true and real spiritual sense and granted you eternal life just as he has granted Paul eternal life. You too belong to the brethren of the Lord Jesus Christ, as the Apostle Paul brings to the, to the brethren of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have the same salvation. You have the same message. You have the same command in some sense that Paul has. And that's what we're going to look at here by way of application of how Paul's carrying the gospel in this particular circumstance can encourage and help us as we go and carry the gospel in our circumstances of life that God has given us and our situations of life that God has given us. So we too have a commission and it doesn't have every unique element to it that Paul's had, but it has the same bottom line. We too are to go forth and carry the gospel, making disciples among men, just as Paul has his commission to do likewise. <clears throat> so this text gives us really uh, one of three accounts of Paul uh, uh, conveying what happened to him on the Damascus Road. Uh, obviously, in nine, we've already worked through that in chapter nine of the book of Acts. Also, in chapter 26 of the book of Acts, we see him give his testimony there as well. And uh, later in other books, in Philippians chapter three and in First Timothy chapter one, we'll also see similar language concerning Paul giving his testimony, if you will. But the setting of this address is that hostile crowd, right? And so now Paul's been rescued, if you will, by the Romans. The prophecy has come true that Paul, Paul is certainly aware of this circumstance. He knows that trouble is awaiting him when he enters in Jerusalem. He goes uh, with, with full awareness of what God has laid before him in Jerusalem. He's following through. He's going to see his ministry to the end in terms of bringing that love gift from the Gentile churches and creating that bond, Jew and Gentile believers. Um, and so Paul is, is dead set on that. He's worked diligently. And now here comes the false accusations. Here comes the attack. So Paul is literally rescued from the crowd, beating him to death. And now as they take him up to the fort, Paul asks the commander, may I speak? He speaks to the man. If you remember uh, last chapter, he speaks to him in Greek. So that catches the commander's attention. Oh, well, this is an educated man. Paul goes on to explain to him briefly uh, who he is, where he's from and asked if he can have permission to speak to the crowd. And as he turns to the crowd, he speaks to them in Aramaic. Uh, that was the lingua franca of the day. So that's the vernacular of the, the, the Hebrew people of the day. And that catches their attention. And so the crowd comes to a bit of a hush. And Paul then begins to speak. And so 
he has this moment because there is uh, the detractors from Asia Minor. And we know surely it's the leaders there that have tracked him all the way down to Ephesus. That's where he spent his most of his time. And that's where he had the most aggressive uh, uh, attacks against him, against him by the, um, the Jewish leadership. And so now they're back in at Pentecost. They're back in Jerusalem. They spot him in the temple and they go after him. They stir the crowd and the crowd tries to tear him limb to limb. It's all false accusations. We find that in the last chapter, chapter 21, verses 37 through 31. The Romans break in and rescue Paul, really, but arrest him at the same time. That happens in verses 30 through 40. And then we find Paul making that request from 40 to the uh, at, at, at verse 40 there at the end at the end of the chapter. So he makes that request. And right up front, before we get into the language here, I want you to think about something. Again, Paul's testifying of what God has done in his life. He's going to communicate the gospel here. Yes, very unique circumstances for Paul and how God broke into his life, no doubt. But nonetheless, look at the circumstances here. As Paul asked for this moment to speak, are they comfortable? circumstances this is not he's in a tight spot right this is not this is not an easy moment in paul's life but paul is the one thing i want us to get from paul he is always ready to communicate the gospel is he not i mean it's a simple thing but we could overlook that he's ready he is ready and eager to communicate the gospel and i know with every good intention and i don't want to minimize this uh, we'll, we'll pray earnestly and we'll, and we'll ask God to, to, um, to open doors for us to share the gospel. And we'll ask God to, to grant us capacity to, to, to share the gospel, and, and rightly so. But I want us to take a moment to just think about the circumstances here. They're bad. They're not ideal. His life is on the line here. And Paul seizes the opportunity in a bad situation. And I'm not, I'm not knocking us for praying for good situations and, and, and for God to pr- provide these opportunities for us, right? We pray for that. And I, and I know we do with honest hearts. God, if you just give us opportunities to share the gospel, open doors. Well, I want you to see here that Paul just sort of kicks the door down. He creates his opportunity. And here's what I want you to think about. Look, this is what Paul knows, and we should know this as well. Paul understands that his situation that he's in right here is dire. But the situation has been granted to him, placed upon him, given to him at that moment in his life from where? From whom? God has placed him in this situation. God is sovereign over this situation. God has placed Paul in these circumstances. And so if you think about it, God is sovereign over all our circumstances, right? So you have the opportunities always there. You don't have to look for it. It's there. And then if you think about, well, God, you know, can you just open the door? You open it. I mean, Paul kicks the thing down all the time. Create your own open door. The opportunity is there. God's sovereign over your circumstances. God's sovereign over these circumstances. 
So if you think, man, they're too bad, they're too tough, it's not, it's not, the ground's not fertile enough, it's not, I don't have just quite the right relationship at work yet, I'm just not quite where I need it. God's sovereign over your circumstances. Good, bad, or indifferent from your perspective, He's sovereign over your circumstances and He's placed you in them. Now you seize the moment. Learn from Paul here and seize the moment. And he really is not worried about it, you know, where it becomes, you know, just perfectly emotionally cushy enough for me to go ahead and then maybe speak. He knows God is sovereign and he creates his own opportunities all the time. And here's just a great example because he could be distracted here, right? His mind could be on a few other things. But he's, the stage has been set for him. He sets, literally sets atop the crowd. He's bound James, but he sets atop the crowd. And he seizes the moment himself because his heart is set on the mission that God has given him. And the core of that is carrying forth the gospel. So Paul speaks out. God has ordained the situation. God has ordained all of your situations. See them as opportunities. That's how Paul sees it. He doesn't see circumstances and situations that, ah, this might be an opportunity, this might not, I have a better way. He sees them as God ordained, and they're all opportunities. And the same is true for us. So learn from Paul and create your open doors. Kick the cotton picking things down and walk through with the gospel. View your situation as an open door. Now let's get to Paul's past a little bit here. And that's in the first uh, uh, verses one through five there. I want you to see Paul's past. And he's just going to recount his identity as a fellow Jew to the Jewish audience there, okay? So listen how he begins there in verse one. Brethren, brethren and fathers, hear my defense or hear my apology, which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became more quiet. And he said to them, verse three, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Sicily. Now, he declares himself to be a Jew, right? So he reiterates that. And he says, he reminds them where he's born. Again, he's, he's ingratiated himself to them by speaking in their own language, speaking their dialect. So he's gotten their attention that way. And again, Paul, Paul is doing everything he can to, uh, to relate to his audience. And that's good, too. Just be mindful of that. He really works on relating to them. And we'll see that spill out here in this first part as he kind of goes over his past. And in some sense, we have something in common with everyone that we're going to engage uh, engage with in life. Now, that, that might not be much at times granted. Like Paul has, again, this is a unique circumstance. Paul has much in common with his fellow Jews. And he's going he's gonna to try to enforce that because he's trying to uh, sympathize with them. And he's trying to ingratiate himself with them, with them. But for us, we always have something in common with fallen man. We're part of fallen man, right? So be just a little reminder here. Be gracious, be gentle, and try to try to relate. Try to relate and um, be gentle in your approach. But he reminds them there that he's born in Tarsus. So that tells them right away he's an educated man. Okay, this is no small city. So he's a man of higher learning, and he doesn't mind him knowing that. He's, he makes that point. It's okay. He says he was brought up 
In Jerusalem, though, in verse 3, I'm from Tarsus. I'm from a, an educated place. I'm, in fact, an educated man. But most of my education is in Jerusalem. And really, sometimes as early as age 12, when they were bringing these, these young men in to groom them to be rabbis, as was true of Paul in his life, uh, they can come uh, to Jerusalem as early as 12. And really, their entire education up in grooming them for that role really is all done there in Jerusalem. Sometimes their families would come with them, and sometimes their families would just uh, they would leave them there in Jerusalem and live outside the city, close, sometimes far. So that could vary. But the, the young man would literally grow up in Jerusalem under the tutage of um, the elders there. So he says, I live there in Jerusalem. I was being groomed that I understood that he was being groomed to be a rabbi. And then he reiterates here, I was educated under Gamaliel. So that was the rabbi of all rabbis, right? And he wasn't, uh, what was Gamaliel? Was he kind of a left-leaning sort of rabbi or was he very, very conservative? He was, a, he was the, in the by-the-book conservative group, right? By the letter of the law. So Paul's telling them, you know, I'm no, I'm not loose with my Judaism, man. I'm not out here on the on the on the uh, the, the, the maniac fringe. I was a by the book letter of the law uh, of the law, uh, trained under a student tutored, uh, tutored under Gamaliel. I adhere to the law. I am not trifling with the law. I'm not opposed to the law. I am a student of the law. And so he goes on, he says, I was strictly trained according to the law of our fathers. Now, all he's getting at there when he says he was strictly trained, he, he's, again, studied under Gamaliel, uh, and that's under the, the school of Hillel. And so it's a conservative view brought up by the letter of the law. But he says, I was strictly trained. In other words, I was highly disciplined. I was disciplined to a high degree, carefully instructed. He's basically saying they catechized me in the law. The Old Testament letter of the law, legalist. That's what Paul was. And as detractors say, no, 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 he's against the law. And Paul is saying here with this language, that is so far from the truth. I'm as much a legalist for the law as you have ever seen. I was groomed in it. I was steeped in it from a young age. And then he goes on and he reiterates there again, being zealous for God, just as all of you are today. And zealous there is used as a noun in the culture often. And what's that word? So here he's saying, when he said, I was zealous, they also have a noun form of that word. Zealot. A zealot. And what he's saying here in no uncertain terms is, I was a zealot. I was a zealot for God. In other words, I was an anti The zealots were as far uh, uh, right-leaning as you could imagine. I was anti-Rome. I was pro-Israel. Uh, I was extreme a nationalist. I had a Israel first ideology. Now, these folks were folks that were not afraid to use violence in defense of the Torah. And we know that's true of Paul. He says, I know that there, that, uh, there are those among you that want to kill me today that have this very same belief. And I'm telling you, 
That's exactly who I am. I am just like you. I was groomed to believe just like you believe. I understand where you're coming from. And by this language, he's saying to them, look, I understand why you were out to kill me. I used to be the same way. I did the very same thing. That's why I was going to Damascus. I was going, and he's going to tell, he's going to tell them, I was going to persecute those of the way, Christians. Listen to the language here. Verse 4, he said, <clears throat> I persecuted this way. He's speaking of that language that used speaking of Christians in that, in that age, the way. So he said, I went after them. That's why he's telling this crap. I went after Christians. I went after them to persecute them because they were opposed to the law. Now he's talking about going after other Jews. And he's saying these other Jews that went rogue. And we understood as zealots to be opposed to the law. I was the one that went to get them. And we were happy. We were prepared to use violence in defense of the Torah over these people who had gone rogue and were opposed to the law. I know exactly why you're trying to kill me. I understand where you're coming from. I was just like you. And so he says there in verse four, I would bind them up. I went there to bind them. I went there to put them, man and woman, into prison. I went there to shut this movement down, this this way, these Jewish Christians. I went there to destroy the way. I know exactly how you feel. I was just like you. And then he makes a very, very clever, slight little turn here in his defense. And again, Paul, Paul is a great trial lawyer. So listen to what he does here. He, he, kind, of, he kind of connects himself with them. He, and he says, in certain terms, am I opposed to the law? You need to understand this. I, you need to understand where I came up. You, understand, you need to understand my roots. You need to understand that I understand why you're doing what you're doing. I can relate to you. And again, that's a healthy thing for us to try to approach in our evangelism when we can, to whatever degree we can. He's relating to them. And then he moves in verse 5 and he says this. This is what I had set out to do, persecuting those of the way. And also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. So he says, look, the high priest and all the rest of the Sanhedrin can tell, can tell you exactly who I am. Now, why could they do that? That's right. He can't go to Damascus without the paperwork, right? Who gives them the paperwork? They do. So this is beautiful. He says, look, the high priest and all the rest of the Sanhedrin all know who I am. They all know what I've been up to. They can tell you everything about my character. They can tell you everything about my Jewishness. They can, every, they can tell you everything about me being a zealot for the law. They know exactly who I am. From them, I also received the letter, the letters. Again, that's the paperwork to go bring these Christians back from Damascus and persecute them. And so as he's saying this to them, saying, here's, what, here's who I am. Am as a Jew. This is where I'm coming from as a Jew. And I can relate to your hostility towards me. And what do you think about me now? 
but I'm not opposed to the law at all. And everyone around here, to the, all the way up to the highest degree, all of the religious leaders in Jerusalem can tell you who I am. And can, they can tell you what I've been up to. They can tell you why I was going to Damascus. Because I'm going to tell you about something that happened to me as a zealot Jew going to persecute the way in Damascus. Now, that's who I was. I was just like you. I can understand where you're coming from. And what I was doing when I was going to Damascus with letters to gather up these rogue Jews. And something happened to me on the way to Damascus. And that is what I need to tell you about. So that's his past. And it sets a springboard for his conversion. So now I want us to think about his conversion. As we do, remember, he's saying here, I was more zealous than any of my contemporaries. It brings up Philippians 3, 4, and 6. It's the language of Philippians uh, chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else had a mind to put confidence in the flesh, for I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Now he's talking about all the externals, but he's saying that's exactly who I was. You want to find, you, you want to put the poster child zealot up? There's my picture. I understand why you're out here desiring to kill me. You believe that killing me is pleasing to God. You see, Paul got that. Doesn't make their actions right, but he does understand their intent, although it's twisted. And he's going to bring them back because he's going to say, where you are left off and completely confused, I'm going to fill in the rest of the story for you. You are zealous for God, but you are so deadly wrong. I know why you want to kill me. You think that pleases God. There's people all over this planet that worship a false God and think that killing others will ingratiate them with that God. And that's the frailty of our existence as fallen beings. And Paul goes right to the heart of the matter. And he says this, look, I understand. I was just like you. Romans 10, verses 2 and 3. For I testify, I built them, and this is again Paul's language here, speaking to the Romans, which he wrote earlier before this incident in space and time. So this is the language. He's always in his heart. He's already lined up for this. God's prepared you for every circumstance he puts you in. You realize that? You know, we don't line up with that emotionally, but it's true. This is a hard circumstance. God's already prepared you for this. He's already prepared you for your, your circumstance. The opportunities are there. They're always there. You walk out the door, they're there. You don't have to look for them. You just have to live godly in them and carry the gospel. Listen to Paul's language in Romans. For I testify about them that they have zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, 
they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Now, Paul's about to tell them about the righteousness of God found in Christ alone. That is the true righteousness that they can never supplant and try to try to somehow conjure up their own righteousness to satisfy the law of God, which twists, which brings them to a such a twisted state that they're ready to maim and kill others and somehow tell themselves that it's what God would be pleased with them doing. That's how far they'll go to try to find righteousness in their own flesh. And Paul's going to bring them to the true righteous one, the only hope of glory. Now listen to what he says about his conversion as he brings them with them onto Damascus Road. I was persecuting Christians. That's why I went there to persecute the way. So Paul's not, he's not some, he's saying to them, I am not some, you know, guy out in left field, some guy that you can't relate to. I know exactly where you're coming from. And in some way, we do too in every circumstance of life where we're dealing with lost sinners. We may have very little with in common with them, but we do have something. We know that they're striving somehow in whatever uh, categories they have of morality to find some balance, some approach to to justifying themselves for something. And we know that their real justification comes up to their uh, to, to them being justified before the law of God. And you can't do that in your own flesh. There is only one way to be justified before your creator, and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have that in common. And Paul gets right to that element, that raw nerve of all reality with these folks who he has a lot in common with. And see, he's not some just whacked out guy that's run away from the faith. He's a truth teller. And it doesn't matter if they're saying to him that he hates the law. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they call you names. It doesn't matter if they make accusations about you that are false. That doesn't matter. He's truth telling. What Paul is doing here is truth telling. What you are doing in whatever context you're in, when you go forth and carry the gospel, you are truth telling. It doesn't matter what they say about you. It doesn't matter what they accuse you of. That doesn't change the facts. You're truth telling to them about their creator and their responsibility and accountability before him, whom they will meet someday eternally. And you're giving them the truth. So Paul never lets the accusations bother him, nor should we. They're going to accuse you. They're going to slander you. And in that, you're truth-telling. So you always bring them back to the truth, whether they relate to it, like it, or opposed to it, or whatever. That you can't control. That's God's work. You remain a truth-teller. Paul does that well. He remains a truth-teller. So he gives his witnesses there, which was great. You know, he's like, go ask the council about me. They know. They gave me the letters. They know who I am. Something happened to me on the way to Damascus. That's what you need to know. Something happened. And that brings us to his conversion. And let's look there beginning in verse six. But it happened that I was on my way approaching Damascus about noonday or about noontime, excuse me, about noontime. A very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. So he makes note here that it's noon. Why does he do that? 
That's for emphasis, by the way. But, right. That's the brightest part of the day, right? It's, it's the middle of the day. It's as bright as it can get. And a bright light comes down, suddenly flashing down from the heavens all around me. That supersedes the brightness of the noonday sun. Now, that gets their attention, doesn't it? Now, that's a vivid picture right there. So this bright, this is brighter than the noonday sun. That was just shining upon me. It supersedes that. This is the glory of Almighty God. The light, the shining light of God. All-encompassing glory bears down upon me as I'm on my way to Damascus. So I'm going there to persecute Christians. I'm going there to wipe out the movement. It's noonday and bam, the light of the glory of God surpasses the noonday sun right there in my very presence. Verse seven, he says, I fell through the, really, <laughs> I fell to the ground. What else could you do? I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, some, again, sometimes scripture is just funny, right? Because if the, the light of the glory of God that supersedes the noonday sun just bears down upon you, you know, you're not going to sit there and ponder, what is that? <laughs> no, you're going to fall prostrate to the ground, which is exactly what Paul did. Look, Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is God. Every knee. He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow. And this is just a little snapshot in Scripture that we just see that here's the glory of God just presses down upon Paul and bam, he's laid out on the ground. And then he sees the glory of God in Christ here the brightness of the glory of God, and he hears the Lord. So he says there, the Lord says to him, as the, the brightness of the glory of God is bearing down upon him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, who's he going to persecute? The way. The church, Christians, and gentlemen, if someone slanders your wife, if you didn't know, I'm going to help you today. They slandered you. You are one with your wife. And I'll, I'll go a step further. They don't get to slander your wife. So you fix it. Right? Because that's your wife. You're one. Now, how much more? When those whom God has united to himself are slandered and blasphemed and persecuted, how much more is the Lord Jesus Christ slandered and persecuted? He has united himself with his body, the body of Christ, the church. He's united himself with his people. When the church is persecuted here, the Lord himself is saying to Paul, it's you're persecuting me. When you persecute my people, you're persecuting me. And so if that weren't enough, Paul's clued in very quickly. You're sinning against me. 
So there's no question now. You're guilty. You're interfering with my work. This is my people that I've united to myself. This is my church. This is my people. This is my covenant. This is my salvation. This is my redemption. This is my atoning blood. This is my resurrection. This is my folks that I have sovereignly brought to myself. And you're interfering with me. You're guilty. And there's no external religious rituals that are going to fix it. You're guilty. So the persecuted Christian is to persecute the very Son of God. And so Christ here comes to him as judge and he demands obedience, right? And Paul stands guilty, opposing what Christ is doing in this world. So here's his answer. Look there in verse 8. And so I answered. Who are you, Lord? Well, he's got half of it right, doesn't he? He knows deity. He's sure he's dealing with God. But this person that he's missing, isn't it? He knows this is God. But what about this person? Who are you? And so Christ answers back in verse 8. And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene. Now, that's what that's one of the moments where if we now, you know, just the, the, the fear of the glory of God pressing down. OK, maybe I'm not ready for that, but I would love to just be there in that moment to just just know, just like to hear what Paul was thinking out loud. Jesus, the false prophet that was crucified for blasphemy. That Nazarene. The one I've been mocking. The one whose followers I persecute. You're the Lord of glory. And the answer is eternally, definitively, yes. Jesus the Nazarene. Could you imagine what's rolling through Paul's head at that time? Here's God Almighty pressing down on him. He's got that. But who are you? Jesus, the Nazarene. And then it just melts. Paul's done. He is done. And that's the truth of the gospel. And everyone you bring it to, when they hear that reality, because that's the reality, you're a truth teller. That's the reality. When they hear that, they're done. And you're not out to win arguments. You're not out to make uh, uh, to persuade someone with clever language. You're out to tell the truth. That is a supernatural reality on every human being in this planet. That's what they must hear. And they shouldn't hear it from arrogance. And when, the God, when, when God thunders down out of heaven and the other guys hear something, but they can't even make it out. You know why? Because he's speaking directly to Paul. They hear the voice of God. They don't know what he's saying. Paul hears the words because God Almighty is speaking to Paul. You carry the gospel truth. And you trust that God Almighty does the supernatural work. You tell the truth. Doesn't matter where they're coming from. Doesn't matter the response, although your heart 
long to see lost people come to Christ. I'm not saying that. You understand where I'm coming from. You tell the truth. It's Jesus the Nazarene. That's the Lord of glory. That's the only hope of salvation. That's the only way for a sinner to be made right with the holy God who stands in righteous judgment over fallen man. And you must repent and believe on that Lord. There's no other. That's the message that we must carry. And that's the truth that Paul hears from Almighty God. It's me. God doesn't say there's options here, right? This is the eternal Christ. He just lays it out. Who are you, God? Are there options here? Does this have anything to do with his current uh, cultural climate or where he was born or his ethnicity or his, or his current beliefs at the time or his religious practice or his zeal or his background or his upbringing? No, he just met the God of the universe and he inquired, who are you? And here's the one true answer that holds sway over all mankind. Jesus, the Nazarene, period. That's your message. That's your message. That's your gospel. That's the only hope. That's the hope of salvation. Jesus, the Nazarene. So with this language, Paul says (laughs) to the crowd there, right? As he's conveying this, what he's saying to them is, is, hey, don't blame me, right? So he's he's standing there shackled to two guards. And he says to them, it's Jesus the Nazarene. God struck me down in all his glorious life. And I inquired about his personhood. And he says, it's me, Jesus the Nazarene. And so he says to his Jewish crowd there, and the same thing you say to anyone else, you speak the gospel to, don't blame me. (laughs) You know, take that one up with Jesus. Look, I just carry the mail, Jack. You take that one up with the boss. That's it. And that's exactly what it is. Don't blame me. I didn't have anything to do with this. I'm telling you what Jesus did in my life. I didn't do it. He did it. I was going to persecute the way. Look, I had my marching orders. I had my game plan. I had my religion. I had my zeal. I had my upbringing. I had my purpose in life. And Jesus stopped me. He did it. He broke into my life and he saved me. Don't blame me. You take that up with the boss. God did this. God did this. Take it up. And the same is true for us. God has done this in our life. The same is true for us in evangelism. These folks, again, these folks saw the light, right? That was with him there in verse 9. Listen to him here. They saw the light. Those that were with him. They saw the light, but they didn't understand the voice of the one who was speaking. So they're there, but he's dealing with Paul. You see that? So sometimes that's confusing language, but that's that's exactly why it's there. It may be there for other reasons that I'm not really aware of right now, but it's there for no less reason than that. I'm sure I I feel right before God telling you that I know. It's nothing less than that. They don't hear it because they can't discern it because he's speaking to Paul. 
He's dealing with Paul. This is God Almighty dealing with Paul. It's the same thing that's happened in your life. If you're here as a genuine follower of Christ, God spoke to you concerning the person of Christ and his salvation on you. He's brought repentance and faith to your life. He's broken to your life and brought you from darkness into his glorious light. That's your message. You know, when people have problems with you, you say, you take that up with Jesus. I'm just delivering the mail. When they want to speak about options or, or uh, other possibilities or pluralities, they take that up with Jesus. You tell them the gospel truth. The same is true for us in evangelism. When they saw the light, they were afraid. They were witnesses. Paul could call them. Hey, look, they saw the light. They know what happened. They didn't hear the voice. They'll tell you what happened. They'll tell you they saw that. They'll tell you they heard the, the, Lord, the, the voice. They just couldn't distinguish the voice. God was dealing with Paul in particular. The Lord of glory appeared to Paul on the Damascus road in a saving work, a sovereign saving work. And listen to Paul there in verse 10. So um, what do I do? <laughs> what do I do, Lord? So what do I do? What shall I do? And the Lord said to me, get up and go to Damascus. And there you will be told, here we go, all that has been what? Suggested for you? All that has been uh, given for you to contemplate and decide what you might do? All that has been appointed to you? Appointed to you by who? That's right. The Lord of glory. So what did Paul have to do with this whole saving event here? He just got knocked over by God and saved. By God. That's a great question. And what do I do? Um, just wait for instructions about what you've been commissioned to do by me. Now, here's the kicker for you. In a very clear and straightforward way, you have the same commission. What God knocked Paul over with on the Damascus grave, which was his very presence and his saving grace, he has also knocked you over with at some point in time in your life. And you have, at the bottom line, the very same commission. Go forth, carry the gospel, and make disciples in the name of your Savior, Jesus Christ. What do I do? That's what you do. That's what Paul did. The salvation here is of God, right? God did it. It's consistent with his nature, isn't it? John chapter 6, verses 37 through 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Paul was going on his merry way, doing his own thing, and God breaks into his life. And his life, of course, is reversed by God. This is not a Paul's doing. This is God's work in Paul's life. The same is true for us. So when we think about conversion, pray for conversion. 
Why? Who, why do we pray specifically? When we get together, we just pray specifically for the conversion of people that we know, specifically by name. Why would we pray for their conversion? Who does the converting? God does it. We lift them to God because God's the only one that can convert them. They can't, we can't go and try to uh, um, compel them to make certain decisions. We can go right to the only one that can save them and beg him to save them by name. Through a means that God has ordained that pleases his heart, that we acknowledge his worth and we cry out to him on behalf of sinners because we know exactly what that feels like because we once were in the same boat and God broke in our lives and saved us. We cry out to them, cry out for the converted because God saves them. God saves them. God chose Paul. His conversion was part of God's plan. Your conversion is also part of God's plan. Your salvation is part of God's plan. And you, like Paul, are called to be witnesses. Verse 11. Paul says, but since I could not see because the glory of God was just shining down upon him and knocking to the ground, for the brightness of light, I was led by the hand with my, so the, his cohorts there, took him into Damascus. I was led to Damascus, and there... It says in verse 12, a certain man named Ananias, a man, well, again, listen to him. He was devout by the standards of the law. He was well spoken of by the Jews who lived with him. So he said, here's another guy that's a faithful Jewish guy, just like me. That's what Paul's saying. He's faithful to you. This is a faithful Jew. You ask anybody around him. You ask, ask all the Sanhedrin if I was not a faithful Jew. I'm a faithful Jew to this day. So what Paul is doing here, but using Ananias and himself, he's saying, look, we've not become any less Jewish uh, the language with me, Paul, I'm, I'm adding a language here, but it's language that's been used, you know, through history. We're um, completed Jews. We're Jewish, Jewish people that now have understood that all the law and all of Old Testament Israel is pointing to the promised Messiah, which is Christ. Our Messiah has come and that's fulfillment of all that we're looking at in the law. And we must look at it now and see that we cannot ever walk righteously in and of our own strength. The law is pointing to the one who has walked, walked righteously in our behalf. And now we are well, now we understand that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, our promised Messiah. Now we are complete in Christ. He said, here's another Jewish man who's already by this point in time. Ananias had already accepted Christ. So here's a faithful Jewish man. Well respected there by his folks as a faithful Jewish man, and he's already a follower of Christ. And Paul said, hey, here's an example. Here's what it looks like for me as a Jew to come to Christ, just like Ananias. This is what it looks like for faithful Jewish men to now embrace their Messiah. Why? Because he's broken to our lives. This is our God. This is our Savior. And so there he sees Ananias. And Ananias really, again, with the power of God to speak to Paul's calling here. Uh, he stands near Paul there in verse 13. He says, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And that's where we see uh, the scales fall from Paul's eyes. And Paul now can see physically again, where he's now already seeing spiritually more than he's ever seen in his life. His physical eyes are blinded. Now, that's just illustrative. That just stresses the point. But now he's being commissioned. So now is the point in time where he's going to go forth with the gospel. And so he's given sight back to his eyes supernaturally. He can see physically again. At that very time, I looked up at him and he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and see the righteous one. That's exactly what has happened. And he said, it's appointed by God. This time was appointed for you by God. 
God broke into your life and saved you. That's a sovereign, saving work of God. And the same has happened to you and I. So he says, you will hear the righteous one and you will see the righteous one. And then verse 15. And you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. So Paul here, he assures the crowd that he's not turned to a false God, nor is Ananias. But they have trusted in the one true God who has offered salvation in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. And now with full light of the knowledge of Christ, now with reality, the saving grace of Christ resting upon him. Paul knows God's will through the righteous one, his Lord Jesus Christ. He has seen the light of Christ. He has heard the gospel truth. And now he knows that Old Testament Israel points to Christ. Isaiah 53, 11, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Ephesians 1, 4 through 7, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved, that's Christ. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So Paul is commissioned by God to be his witness. God chose him and God transformed his life. And he did so for his own purposes, for God's own purposes. And God has chosen you and transformed your life for his own purposes. The same is true for us. We're called to be his witnesses. So again, let Paul be an encouragement to you here. Be compassionate. Relate to folks where you can. Don't come in with a high and mighty arrogant attitude. Be gentle. Be tender. Be kind. Be sober. Be blood honest and speak the gospel truth. Be compassionate. Relate with others when you can, any way you can, and testify to what you have heard in Scripture and what you have seen God do in your life. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you uh, for our time together. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that you have lavished upon us in Christ. We ask that you would give us strength um, to embrace our calling, that you would give us courage. We know the opportunities lay before us uh, in multitudes. Every day you grant us life, the side of glory. They lay before us in multitudes. You, uh, um, you have ordained our steps. You have ordained our circumstances. The opportunities are literally there moment by moment. We ask you would give us uh, a conviction, a courage, um, a soberness, and a faithfulness to walk in them to your glory and carry your gospel. And we ask that you would give us um, wisdom to make our own doors and to kick them in. Because we are overwhelmed with your worth and your call upon our lives and the saving hope that we know is true in Christ. 
Would you come? And would you strengthen your people? Would you meet with us? And would you fill us up? That we might know you more fully and that we might light into this world. Gospel truth tellers. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.